Do you have random information wasting away in your brain? Share it with me. Rate us five stars on Apple Podcasts and teach me something in the comments, and I'll read it on the show for other people who have information sitting in their brain just wasting away that I could be reading on the show. Also, if you'd like to help us pay our guests and produce the show, you can become a patron at patreon.com slash what's my thesis. Yeah, yeah. I would say I'm definitely most interested in the worthless areas. Yeah. yeah. surreal for me okay. <laughs> i feel like a recording artist <laughs> <laughs> well we can do the hey, hey, Only mariah carey <laughs> uh welcome to what's my thesis i'm your host javier proenza every week my guests and i share the answers we found to the questions we have join us as we explore and expand our worldview through research and ask what's my thesis and today i have uh Kellen Barnaby King. Correct. <laughs> Do you go by the I, full name? I don't always, but uh, I was so embarrassed of my middle name as a kid that now, like as an adult, I really kind of love it. It's like one of those old family it. names that no one wants to get stuck with. I'm like, that's kind of cool. Barnaby. Yeah. Where is that like a parent or, or a grandparent ancestor? Great, name? great grandparents who homesteaded Nebraska. Um, and she you know, ended up getting married and having children under another name. So to preserve the name, every couple generations, one of the kids gets it. It's kind of the loser, <laughs> loser bunch of the names. But now I'm like, I love it. And I go back and look at Ancestry and try and figure out what they were doing when. And Yeah, uh, that's cool. It's interesting at the very least. Yeah. Yeah. We were just before uh, we started recording, we were talking about Jinkos and, Jinko and how, how you related to something to my uh, childhood or my not childhood, I guess I was like a teenager of yeah. like having the frayed pants. And you were saying that they're coming back. Uh, well, I've heard that Jinko is making jeans again, but the story I wanted to share with you is I was a gymnast for 13 years and when my... Um, you know, the high school does kind of a profile on each senior that's graduating. And I was kind of this drug addict loser at this point. And they're like, <laughs> oh, we'll have him do gymnastics and we'll take photos of that. And I was wearing my big old Jinko jeans and <laughs> they caught so much wind. I just totally bailed, tumbling. And so none of the photos were good. They used something else entirely, but it was entirely because of Jinko jeans that that oh, uh, did not take place. You know? Wow, I wonder like how much better a skater I would have been if I didn't wear right? those big fucking pants. They are totally impractical. <laughs> the only thing they were good for was sneaking drugs in and out of said concert venue, I feel yeah. like. And for that purpose, they served <laughs> right. well. They really did. Um, yeah, the other thing, well, the thing that I wanted to get into is that now there's the, uh, I don't know if you've seen, there's like a trend called the asymmetrical denim trend where... It's like a pant, and I saw, um, what's her face, Celine Dion, wearing okay. it. And so it's like, 
one leg is just a regular like not quite a capri pant but like a pant that's rolled up uh-huh. but you know a uh, uh, very feminine fit and then the other leg is straight jinko i I don't know that I look to Celine Dion for my my well, fashion cues, appara- but I'm really curious about as to why she was getting she's making news for her jeans. Well, you're from my generation. Right. She was getting two snaps in a circle. Okay. <laughs> for that. I don't know. Actually, now that I think about that, that's probably pretty problematic. <laughs> Yeah, she. Uh, I don't think of her as being the return to the rave culture, especially. But yeah, uh, well, it, it was a trend that like Bella Hadid uh-huh. and all those people are like doing, and I can see it when it's that. And I think it was a very much like, oh, you're an old lady. <laughs> yeah, right. And you're, but you're rocking it, girl. Still that kind a of like <laughs> that uh, attitude that the media sort of takes, where it's like. Empowerment, <laughs> right? Divas, divas, divas yes. worldwide, or whatever. She's those so are like, well, yeah. I mean, I guess she was a she was a fucking yeah. huge deal. So I guess it's not too bad. I think she still is, yeah. but uh, it, you know, not my genre. <laughs> what is your genre? That, Rave oh, music. come on now! No, no, no. <laughs> Just happy hardcore all the time, still to this day. <laughs> my ears start bleeding at any given moment. You'll know why. Yeah. Um, no, I. I, I the, at this point, I listen to Pandora and I don't even look at what's on it. I got to be honest, yeah. I've reached that age where I'm just like, you know, the stuff I think is still cool is 10 years old. And they're like, this is so peak 2009. I was like, whatever, that's the last time I went to a concert. <laughs> <laughs> I can totally relate to that sentiment. Yeah. yeah. And I end up like, um, I'm one of those people that ends up listening to audio content more than, or just like. Talking, people talking like podcasts and, and that kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. I, not so much podcasts, but um, while I'm working in the studio, I definitely do audiobooks. And oh, really? when I'm in the car, it's nothing but NPR because I feel like it's totally wasted time otherwise. You're not learning anything. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Music is nice, but it's not really my. Yeah, go-to. and and also, like, if you're looking for music on the radio, it's just a hassle to, like, always find um, what's it called? Uh, like, Something during commercial breaks. Yeah. Yeah. And other than Uber drivers, I don't know anyone who's listening to like the radio radio anymore. Yeah. Like it. Maybe if I like upgraded, cause I have a tape deck in my nice. car. <laughs> I actually have like, it's pretty fancy. It's a tape deck and a CD player, uh, but it's just completely useless. Speaking now. of peak 2009, <laughs> I get that though. I always had a car with a tape deck so I could listen to my friends mixtapes. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, I mean, even I'm the youngest of six and I grew up with all these old, uh, you know, cheap trick cassettes and NXS and stuff like that. <laughs> and now that I'm an adult and I've gone to see some of these bands, I'm like, it doesn't sound right without like the, the, the speed wobbles yeah, from yeah, yeah. being left out in the sun on your whatever, you know? Yeah. So I identify with the tape deck. I definitely get that. Yeah. And I mean, I mean, it's just, it's probably like was an upgrade that costs like an extra <laughs> few hundred dollars Ooh. on the car. And now it's just like, I need to replace it. Right. <laughs> but I think if I had that, cause like what I do is, I don't even know if this is safe and I should admit it, but I drive around with one headphone on. Cause like that way I can just listen to the podcast that I want. Right. Um, but if I had like some way to play through the radio station or through my radio um it would be different but i do remember the the first time that i like was in a car listening to a cd it Mm -hmm. blew my fucking mind but it was definitely through one of those tape 
deck adapters. Oh, yeah. And you could still hear the quality difference. And now you use one of those. I don't know if they just make them shitty now. Uh, but now you use one of those like tape adapters for your CD player or for your po- uh, iPhone. It's right. like, <laughs> it just, you can hear how, like the crappiness of that. Like, yeah, there's a tinniness yeah. to it. Yeah. Anyway. So, uh, before we get into your topic, I wanted to ask you, cause you are part of Montevista project. Right? Oh yeah. Um, wh- what exactly is it? It's so we're an artist collective, uh, started on Monta Vista street in, uh, what's, what is Eagle walk or Eagle rock, I believe. Mm-hmm. Um, it was founded by a bunch of, uh, CalArts grads. Um, and the, the goal of the community was basically to provide, um, nonprofit showing space for underprivileged, underprivileged communities within the Los Angeles area. Um, or, uh, underrepresented, mm-hmm. I would say artists within the Los Angeles area. So people of color, um, LGBTQ, um, they, these sorts of communities, which maybe aren't getting tapped into by blue chip art markets or even just the typical gallery system. Yeah. Um, we show artists now, um, actually not just from Los Angeles with a preference towards artists from Los Angeles, but from all over the country and from all over the world, um, with an eye towards cultivating community. So we work a lot with other, um, nonprofit artist collectives. Uh, we share space, um, with Tiger Strikes Asteroid Los Angeles. So we do a lot of stuff with them. We've been really involved with TAM over the last uh, two years, which is the Torrance Art Museum through their um, outreach programs and as well as in New Orleans and Austin. And we met you at San Pedro at OPAF. Yeah, yeah. So kind of just keeping our fingers in the uh, contemporary LA. I, I don't want to call it an underground art scene because it's not. We all see each other every week. Yeah, but... No, and it's like pretty, it's if you go, we're there. Right. <laughs> it's uh, not intentionally under, underground. And I will say that our openings are the best night of the month. Uh, everyone should stop by the Bendix building. We're on the fifth floor. I think we're suite 523, but it's 10 floors of um, galleries and artists, studios, and um beer for the price of a $1 donation and it's, it's a great time and it's not, you know, your heady, um, sort of consortium of people standing around talking about art. Everyone's there to see the work and to talk to friends and sometimes the conversations around art and sometimes it's just around, you know, life in Los Angeles or whatever it is. Yeah. It's definitely an accessible. It's a uh, fun time. Yeah. Yeah. So come. And, and it's, <laughs> no, and it's just a nice reason to get dressed and go out, you know? Yeah. <laughs> Although not like my dressy is any different than like my regular, but. Well, th- but at least, I mean, everybody's at least thought about their outfit. Right. <laughs> so if you uh, see me at the Bendix building on any given Saturday night, I will be in most likely a floral pattern button up go-to kind of Hawaiian shirt and I am the bartender. So the most important there really. <laughs> well, let me ask you something. Do you think that we're too old to wear Jinkos again, even uh, though we were originators? You know, or- I've got a bad knee at this point. <laughs> I'm like, <laughs> you're not looking to get caught on like a railing. I look yeah. at those photos of myself. <laughs> I'm just like waxy and pale with acne. It's not a good look. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. They both made me look short, but also long. Like there was there's just something about like yeah we were very much like the skinny shirt and then the jinko jeans yeah, going yeah, out and yeah. it was such a weird look and i don't like 
going back to it. <laughs> Although in Florida it was pretty breezy. Okay. So that, that, that definitely helped to not have like, but yeah. Sure. It's almost like a caftan in that setting. <laughs> like where it's, you're going to have swamp ass if you don't have Jenko's yes, on. Jesus. Got it. <laughs> Thank you. You said it, but I agree. Right. Uh, I mentioned that I had a neck pain and like, I'm realizing that it does matter when you podcast because you like nod mm-hmm. <laughs> every time I do that, it hurts. It's just but, all right. Back yes. Then. So if, uh, if you hear me grown it's not because uh of anything you said but because i agreed <laughs> and i was like nodded too hard yeah um so i, I want to get into your topic today yeah uh so i the thing the thing that i'm interested in both making work about um as well as just sort of like a lifelong fascination is um points on which history can pivot and being a practicing artist in los angeles I'm um, really uh, conscious of and seek out information on both the human and uh, sort of geologic and uh, botanical history of Los Angeles in any given space. Um, And so I was hoping we could talk about sort of land use in Southern California, um, water being the linchpin of that conversation, cool. but also just sort of, um, the politics and geography of Southern California and how that's changed and, um, how we perceive the natural, I think is what's really interesting to me. Yeah. That's fascinating. You hit like all my favorite buzzwords. Oh, nice. That's great. <laughs> or like, uh, all my key searches. <sighs> Sorry. I think that um, it, one one thing I'll mention at the beginning of the discussion because I think it kind of like frames it at least at least for myself um, is I grew up in uh, Palos Verdes, which people think of as a really um, affluent place, but I had really liberal-minded sort of working-class parents, um, professors, and the joke I always tell people is we never went on vacation; we only ever went on field trips. Yeah. Um, so during the summers, you know, my friends would go to Las Vegas and they'd come back with photos of them on the lazy river or riding some roller coaster, or, you know, going to Waikiki. And I'm like, we went to Grand Canyon and hiked down to the Colorado River. Lame. <laughs> but as that an adult, awesome, yeah. I love it now. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like, I'm like, oh, man, going camping with my family. And it was always a road trip, you know. So your mom was down with camping? Yeah, my mom's a biogeographer. Um, my dad is an electrical engineer. Um, oh, and then cool. my mom is remarried to a botanist. So um, I've sort of had this um, sort of institutional learning mm-hmm. framework built around me in my whole life just for How absorption of knowledge. How long has the botanist been, in, been it was like long enough for him to be considered a stepfather? Or, yeah, about okay. 20 years. Okay. Yeah. yeah, I call him dad yeah. from time to time. Not to weird him out. I got out. too enthusiastic yeah, about that. No, no, no. He's a, <laughs> he's a great guy. And, uh, you know, they're up in Topanga Canyon now. So a lot of my sort of ideas about what is natural come from growing up in Palos Verdes, which if you take any kind of uh, magnification um, to it, you really understand that it is, is not a native place. And it's seen so much turnover in terms of especially the biology of the place that, um, so like, uh, imported species and invasive. Is that uh, what you mean? Yes. Okay. Yes. Lots of invasive species, lots of, um, grain, grain stocks that were brought, um, when they first brought cattle here, they couldn't 
get them to eat the local foliage. There's a <laughs> there's a plant. That's such a fucking funny it? problem to have. There's <laughs> yeah, it is. Um, and so there's this plant that the Spanish discovered. Um, it's a relative to the willow, and it's called mule fat because they found a plant that they could get. Um, uh, piece of burden to eat, yeah, but uh, far more um, uh, successful uh, cattle ranching went on with European grain stocks. So we have like a lot of wheat that grows here. Um, you know, of course, the Spanish brought mustard famously. Where I grew up, there was a lot of fennel, um, Spanish pepper trees, a lot of eucalyptus, which they thought they were going to grow to build homes with, but our climate is too dry here. Um, I was thinking they just wanted to import a bunch of koalas. Yeah. I mean, I wish they had. How (laughs) cool would that be? Well, it it does sort of just remind me of how, like, there's, like, this... there's a period where scientists got very excited about the oh, yeah. like discoveries they were making and how they were like, oh, we'll just make the earth like ours right. <laughs> and make it do whatever we want. Right. And that has, and Los Angeles is a great example of how that's backfired spectacularly. <laughs> um, you know, we grew up with peacocks because uh, Vanderlip, who had been, um, like assistant secretary of the treasury. He actually, this is very cool in, in doing research on him. I found out that he's actually the guy who put in, uh, place the federal reserve, which was Alexander Hamilton's like big thing back in the day. And this Mm -hmm. is beginning of the uh, 20th century. So I think, I think John Vanderlip senior. Um, and then he had a diagnosis of like tuberculosis or something. Um, and the cure back in the day was move out to a drier climate. So uh-huh. here's this oil baron, former assistant secretary of the treasury. And he was like, oh, I'll just buy this hill out here called Palos Verdes. And he did exactly that. And then um, in the Gilded Age, established a millionaire's colony and um, thought it was too quiet and brought in peacocks. <laughs> to, Are they noisy? If I'm... you ask anyone from Palos Verdes, if you're like, is it too quiet? They're like, no, the fucking birds, those fucking birds. Wow. Um, but the, these birds that we brought from Southeast Asia then established this like niche here. They have zero predators, all the coyotes and wolves had been hunted to extinction and they just like fit this niche. And I, I, I kind of, <laughs> I think like they're, they're, they are, one of those points on which time can pivot, right? Like yeah. it's So wait, so Palos Verdes, when does it become so it was like just this hideaway for one guy, one rich guy, or was it like a community for rich people? He was going to build a like kind of West Coast settlement in the Spanish style, um, in the hills of Palos Verdes with the idea that it's um due to the geology of the land, right? It's uh uplifted uh seafloor. Okay. But it's uplifted four or five times. And you, if you get off to the side from it, you can actually count the layers. It's, ah, perfect. Everyone will have an ocean view. Of course, we now know that's not the case. But um, at the time, that was the idea. And so he built things like stables and a giant pool. And then the Depression hit. <coughs> and they were kind of land-rich, cash-poor for a long time. Um, and then after the war... Um, and certainly during the war, when, uh, you know, Raytheon, Northrop, um, Hughes Aircraft, you name it, kind of established in the South Bay, Manhattan Beach area, Inglewood, um, it became Engineer's Hill. 
and they mm. built their modernist dream home. So there's so a lot it's of... So sort of like what's happening with the, the tech industry now, right? In like, like San Jose, in yeah, San Jose in those and, areas. And, yeah. Yeah. and even, isn't there a little bit of that happening here too? The, like an influx of, or I'm, I could just be completely wrong. To my knowledge, the West Side has it's, borne the brunt of it, which is why I don't even yeah. drive over there anymore <laughs> if I can avoid it. It's so terrible. Do you, you came from Long Beach, but you, do you live in Long Beach? I do live in Long Beach. Okay. So I lived there during undergrad and now I live there again after five years in the San Fernando Valley. Oh, okay. Cool. So I've kind of hopscotched around <laughs> Los Angeles. So I have lots of different perspectives about the places that I've lived. Yeah. And I'm sure you like, it must be interesting to just keep accessing LA from different angles. Yeah, certainly. And even when you're in a place for a while, you'll get thrown for a loop. The building that I live in now was... Um, uh, God, what did they call it? The Balboa Studios. And it was the largest motion picture studio anywhere in the world. Now, mind you, this is like a one-story, 14-foot high ceilings. And it's a warehouse. Mm-hmm. Um, but that was what was considered a soundstage back in the day. And it's um, the other the other properties which currently inhibit the campus is, or the former campus is St. Anthony's uh, Catholic School. And then MOLA, the Museum of Latin American Art, is also part of what was a seven-acre compound, the largest employer in Long Beach and the biggest movie studio in the world in, you know, uh, pre-war. Whoa. Yeah. So Fatty Arbuckle was their big star, but Charlie Chaplin and a million other names, Buster Keaton, you know, all those guys kind of... Now they haunt my space, so they're there. (laughs) (laughs) Or I want to believe they haunt it. Well, definitely those spaces have a, like, it gives you at least a lot of leeway to imagine what kind of shit went in there. Because <laughs> you probably won't be right specifically, but it's fun to just think about, like, when, you, when you're when you in spots that have so much history. Yeah. That, um, and, like, especially because it was probably a seedy <laughs> sort of industry. Yeah, and you know what? My neighborhood wasn't that great even 10 years ago it's um it's gentrified quite a bit um even in the five years that i lived um up in the valley for graduate school the rents have you know close to doubled it's pretty wild and you know it's still not the 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 safest place i don't i don't hang out or at night alone on the street (laughs) (laughs) um but you know other than that it's fine yeah yeah the, the um I, it's it's crazy because it does feel like um, <clears throat> at no point does the city ever stop gentrifying. A, a sp- like it just seems to be a spreading thing. Oh, uh, and yeah. if you're from here, it's terrifying because it's yeah. like, well, I'm from here. I want to be here. Yeah. That becomes less and less possible every day, and uh, that that part's rough. Yeah, and then people have to live farther and farther away from their jobs. Yeah, it's. It's been uh, a crazy thing to like live in such an active city. Um, I wonder if that shit happens in Miami and places that are gonna get like <laughs> my. They're gonna drown in <laughs> yeah. five to ten years. Uh-huh. Well, my favorite thing is that like because that is such a huge industry over there. Yeah. The the in Miami like and that's where like you know they'll just throw these lavish parties to sort of promote these new houses and it's it's like its own scene for realtors and 
you know, it's it's all that shit you see in like uh, reality television shows mm-hmm. that take place in Miami, where it's like these. Uh, it's just like, what do these people do for a living? Yeah, exactly. First of all, what's your job? Secondly, well, most of them are that. Most yeah. of them are uh, in real estate or in some capacity related to it, or real estate adjacent, some sort of service. They work with construction companies and shit like that. Right. Um, but it it's just it's so funny, like the. Like that whole, um, I, I, since we're on the topic of like, uh, broader historical context, Mm -hmm. I, I do feel like one of the things that's interesting is the, uh, the, the, um, to me is Isaiah Berlin was, uh, talks about how, uh, and I have an episode on him. He's a, he's a philosopher from, uh, uh, around like after world war two, he was big, um, but he he talks about how like we used to legitimately believe in the divine right of kings, right? Like mm-hmm. that kings were special beings imbued with special powers, and like that's how society was structured. And for me, it's the idea of the marketplace and like the <laughs> the belief system that the we divinity had. of capitalism, <laughs> capitalism. right? The, the, well. As it's self destroying, you know, as that self destruction just keeps. Uh, Going on bridal. Yeah, I say peak late capitalism more oftentimes today than I'd like to. I'm like, this is really crazy. Yeah, but it's, it, it, I mean, at least you can enjoy the ideas surrounding it and like wax philosophical. I mean, you have to at least only... think about it because yeah. it's such a nuanced topic from, you know, everything from land rates to gentrification. Like there's so many uh, goods and evils on, you know, sort of all points in the spectrum and none of it is, um, uh, to me, ideologically necessarily good or bad. It's just like happening to us. Right. And so just being aware of it is kind of, I always tell people, they're like, how do you watch the news all day? I'm like, it makes me feel like I have some control over what's (laughs) happening. And it's sort of just like being aware of a subject like that. uh, elicit some sense of control, even if it's totally contrived, you know? Yeah. Yeah. So like what, what other, uh, pivotal moments do you, do you have in mind in your, in your broader interest? Um, one of the, like I mentioned water being a linchpin of all of this in in Southern California, and I've sort of, um, divided that up in into about um four sort of time periods which with the pre um Columbian um which is kind of the native state of the land and the Tongvin and Gabrielinos who were here before the Spanish arrived um and then you have the, the who and the Gabrielinos uh, this is the a Tongvin Tongan Tongvin Tongvin and they um they inhabited basically south of Oxnard so they were the major settlement within Los Angeles County um, and the Gabrielinos are more north, pushing up towards Santa Barbara. Okay. Um, we have a lot of place names associated with it. La Cienega means the swamp, um, which if you've ever driven at that low point where the 90 crosses over La Cienega, it's like real low. You know? So, but these are... Uh, indigenous people, non-Spanish speakers? Uh, non-Spanish speakers initially, but initially. of course during the Spanish period. But so La Cienega right. comes from Spanish though. Yeah. Uh, right. And then there, <clears throat> I used to live off Satakoy and sort of my interest in this use of the language derives from that. I was like, what a weird word. Yeah. Um, come to find out it means shelter from the wind. And if you've ever lived in the Valley for any amount of time, you know that 
those late afternoon winds get real gusty. And so if you're, if you're, and I, 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 I don't mean to use the, the word primitive in a, in a, in a absurd way, but it, in so it is sort of primitive shelters. Yeah. Um, you can imagine how important wind actually is. It's not something we think about when you or I or yeah, anybody yeah. else builds a home, but if you're living in kind of, um, nomadic sort of territorial shelters, then wind, wind becomes really important. And also, um, water, like I mentioned. So, yeah. um, during my graduate school experience, I went and I looked at these old maps. They were maps made for um, the North, Northridge Citrus Company, which eventually became Sunkist, um, which is why Northridge still has a vestigial orange grove on it. Um, uh, what does vestigial mean? Uh, leftover. Okay. Um, so, you know, like someone with a tail. <laughs> <laughs> that, okay. It's, it's like the old DNA of the land. So there's sort of... Um, the pre-Columbian period where the land was foraged, not really, it was an ag- agricultural civilization. We live in a land of bounty. We have the sea. We have lots of um, sort of fruits, vegetables, and, um, you know. Was ate. it always desert out here? Um, desert is probably the wrong designation. Chaparral's uh, okay. California sage scrub. Um, is, sage scrub. And a lot of Los Angeles would have been back dunes habitat or uh, wetlands habitat because of the migration of the rivers. So um, the, the desert connotation is, is, is correct in the lack of water, but what we actually are is a Mediterranean climate, which means we have wet winters, dry summers. Okay. So it uh, differentiates our, um, ourselves, part of Chile, South Africa, the Mediterranean basin, uh, did I say South Africa, and uh, Western Australia. We all have similar climates. And so a lot of throw it back in. We were talking about plants before. If you um, want to lean back, you can also move the mic with you. Oh, thank you. Um, I'll stay, I'll stay more engaged if no, I'm that's sitting fine. forward like Dude, Bernie Sanders. Be for two apparently. It's, it's going to be tiring. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, so, so to, to rope in the discussion of, um, water and, uh, uh, plant life, um, so you just, well, you started off with the three, the four different periods. Right. So we're so we've I've, we've clearly defined that that the, or I guess discussed a little bit about the pre-Columbian. Right. So, so we, what happens uh, post-Columbian? So you would have had settlements sort of all along the coast and wherever there was natural water, and the best places um, for the native communities were hills with uh, access to a spring. Right. Mm-hmm. So the hill is very defensible. Um, and then the water means that you can withstand some sort of siege event or something like that. Um, so as you go down the coast, kind of any hill with water, um, is, is a good place to be, uh, Malibu Creek is a great example. So Malibu, Ooh, Malibu means place where the waves crash loudly in Mm -hmm. the native dialect. Topanga means, uh, where the mountains meet the sea, also a source of fresh water, um, like we mentioned, La Cienega, Satakoy, uh, Cahuenga. These are all... Um, Cahuenga, where's, is that... That's a, an indigenous word? Cahuenga is up in the valley, and I literally looked up the meaning of it this morning, and it's escaping me at the moment. Oh. So, But is it a Spanish word or no? No. Okay, it's, yeah, uh, it doesn't... It, it, it's close enough, but yeah. it, it, it definitely felt... I was like, what the fuck is a Cahuenga? When they were recently building... Um, 
I think it was a, a red line terminal at Universal Studios, they found Campo de Cuenca, which was the original sort of Spanish settlement on the site. And you can go see the footprints of the building and whatnot if you take the red line. Oh, cool. Which is sort of a neat thing. Um, so then uh, you you have the Spanish, and they, they, they roughly settle in the same places. So uh, access to water, again, being the most important thing. Um, they they developed the mission system as as well as the the ranch system was more of a privately owned um, abduction and forced labor itinerant labor of Native Americans um, mm-hmm. during that time period. So um, you know a lot of disease, a lot of uh, prejudice, um, and then. Uh, as white settlers moved out to California and our statehood was um, fast approaching, that all sort of changed and um, the racism went, you know, from native communities really to the Spanish communities, depending on where you are, um, you know, resulting in things like the Zoot Suit Riots in 1943. So wait, the, who's, so the Zoot Suit Riot was a Latino? um... Right. It was American service members versus um, sort of Latino youth in in Los Angeles. And, uh, you know, the police came in defense of the service members um, and, Service members being what specifically? Uh, Navy, Army, okay. and they know. were just they were just like out and about hanging out and having beefs. It's my understanding that they considered the, the literally the zoot suits, the clothing, to be too extravagant during the war effort, and that was sort of I, I, it's such a weird thing the, the, for a riot to happen around. But I think the tensions have been building up for a long time. Yeah. You know. I mean, it's not weirder than other shit. <laughs> no, and when we signed the, you know, the Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo, for one, we were guaranteed a bilingual state, right? This had been Alts, California for a long time at that point. And it took them 80 years to guarantee um, property and citizenship rights to Native communities as well as um, uh, the, the contemporary Mexican communities within within Los Angeles and California. So that, you know, you're talking about like the 1930s at that point that these people gained citizenship. So there was murder and all, all that entails when someone is dehumanized, um, and land was stripped first from, uh, the native Americans and then from, uh, the Spanish and the mission system. So there's sort of a, it seems cyclical, almost, if you look back at the oh, history yeah. of it, the way this keeps happening. And, <laughs> and it brings us right back to gentrification, right? It's still happening. Yeah, and I mean, it's it's a pretty tight cycle. Like, yeah. it's, I mean, <laughs> you know, the Obama years were also, were set up the infrastructure for all of this stuff that's happening. Right. Uh, what I think also is interesting is... Um, there was that guy that got arrested for help or that that's being prosecuted for i forget what the organization that he's with mm-hmm. or no more deaths or something like that uh, leaving water at the border and yeah stuff. leaving yeah. water at the border um but so the idea of that as a deterrent is uh you, you, or, or of like deterrent being like make it as miserable as possible for people right. that's something that like was implemented during the obama years to make crossing more daunting and now they're prosecuting Mm -hmm. the guys that did that and the other thing is the 
I think it was Hillary Clinton's State Department that was like overthrowing, um, or that that they, that they it, like the the history of overthrowing Latin American governments is like so like not that long ago. It was like no. two thousand and it was two thousand and nine was when they 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 pulled the coup. In, Honduras, a lot of the people. So it's this thing of like creating refugees <laughs> because we want their shit. Right. And then, and, and it's easier to have their shit if we like put right wing people in power and then they're coming in. And now we have this racist guy who's like, no, nah, fucking like. <laughs> who has no idea of the history <laughs> yeah, of and has American no involvement, yeah, the Monroe exactly. Doctrine, any of that. He's just totally oblivious. But it brings attention to the whole mechanism, which is what I think is fascinating because it's like, uh, you know, it's one thing to argue like, oh, it would be much better if like someone else was running that same game. Mm -hmm. But um, I think the optics of that particular immigration, like since it's happening on our borders, it's a little unsettling since it's like, I don't know. Um, it's an interesting idea, even the, the basic, like the, the basic concept of a boundary, mm -hmm. like of a border. And um, I've always found it to be something that the, that, that like higher classes can seem to skirt around, get access to visas very easily. Even just the idea of like, uh, um, you know, people that can't leave like certain <laughs> rural areas. Like, mm -hmm. I don't know. I, one of the things that I find also interesting is, is, uh, I had a guest, uh, Peter Max and Lawrence on who, who, who introduced me to the idea of, um, uh, like that, to call someone white trash is actually racist in a very specific way because it sort of separates them. Or it's like, you're the same race, but you're not the same class. Sure. <laughs> right. And that's a, that's a very interesting distinction where you, uh, it, 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 it's interesting to me because it's sort of like, it used to be like capital was unleashed out externally Right. And then there was a privileged class that that uh, and it wasn't necessarily exclusively white. There was some economic opportunity for people uh, otherwise. But um, I think that like the wound, the racial wounds that are involved in processing all this thing makes it very hard to even just address class. Yes, even speaking about it becomes a problem. I like what you're saying about uh, about calling someone white trash, right? Because it really sets up whiteness as being the paramount, the end all be all. And then, oh, but they're not, they're not like, like us. they're not white enough or they're not of, um, you know, and liberals get shamed for this all the time because, yeah. it, you know, you speak over someone's head who hasn't had the level of education that you do. And it's like, well, they're entitled to their opinion as well without necessarily being considered yeah. You know, a second class citizen. I it's it's hard for me to grapple with because I don't. I've met a lot of people who you might see and say, ah, white trash. And you know, when you sit down and talk to them, they tend to be just as uh, interested and engaged in um, contemporary life as everyone else. Yeah. Do you need a second? I just want to. Oh, shut it. Up. it. <laughs> Sorry about that. No worries. It like seriously, don't don't feel mad about that. 
I've done interviews where the phone fucking rings on my computer because nice. I'm do, I'm skyping, so don't worry about it. You're all good. Um, yeah, I, I I also think that like um, <clears throat> to some degree, like. All right. I've been talking with my therapist recently of like how one of the things that this show has given me access to is people that to hang out with people that are um, a little like a little bit more more. I'm getting, I'm basically just getting to meet more people of color mm-hmm. rather than like if I'm just going out and, and, and networking. And like, for example, uh, Michelle, who was uh, the episode that you said you, sure. you you listened to, she just had her birthday and I went to see her because there's something about um, even well-intentioned people that would consider themselves at least center left, mm-hmm. you know, um, they have a very problematic attitude towards people of color. And I think it's kind of like I, I woke up the morning almost like I like clairvoyance where I was mm-hmm. like, uh, when is this situation with Nancy Pelosi and like calling oh, out the, the the women of color? When are the optics of it going to catch up to her? And I was like, it like and, and immediately I, <laughs> I opened my app and it was happening. Right. And it. um what I found really interesting about Trump's statement mm-hmm. is that it encompasses all those things that I was saying. That's that cycle of like, like he's like, that's how clueless he fucking is. Mm-hmm. And there, there's also a lot of stuff like where if you really start to pay attention, you can see which people he listens to. Cause like Tucker Carlson just did a fucking thing about Ilhan Omar. No, when so it'll these, happen five minutes after the, <laughs> the clip ends and then there'll be a tweet. It's yeah. It's bonkers. fucking, it's so crazy. Like how, how all of this shit works. But I do find that like, um, to, you know, I went on a date with a white woman, and uh, <laughs> I was going to say lady, and that felt w- like weird and distancing. Uh, but I went out, and it was like, uh, afterwards, I was like, fuck, if I, if I didn't go out on dates with racist white women, I wouldn't date white women at all, right? Like, <laughs> and, and so I've sort of hit this point where, like, even conservatives that I know are racist, I'm like, well, we've got to find some class-like similarities because uh, I, I, I deal with that shit. Like, you know, it's and it's one of those things that kind of chips away at you slowly. It's yeah. like death by a thousand cuts. Uh, but but and like it doesn't throw me into a rage. It's just exhausting. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so so for me, like, I have lost a little bit of that. Um, sense of elitism towards people that are, uh, you know, like what would be considered white trash or Mm -hmm. rednecks and things like that, where I used to, like, I still maybe won't necessarily feel safe in like, um, the middle of nowhere, rural town, because I'll probably get different looks, which is an experience that I've had. Um, but on like a political discussion level, <laughs> who the fuck am I? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Those and those conversations have become so much harder over the last couple of years, yeah. especially. Whereas you used to be able to sit down with you know someone of the right and have a conversation, at least get to 
a point where you can agree to disagree, but we don't believe in facts or science anymore, which has really become problematic for the conversations around um, yeah. everything. Everything has become politicized in a way that, um, you know, pits, pits people against one another in a really vicious way. Yeah. Um, but like you were saying, it's cyclical and it's the same sort of system that demonizes uh, refugees, yeah. right? And and has before, yeah. and uh, will in undoubtedly again um, due to its cyclical nature. But I think about the treatment of Irish Catholics in this country, yeah. or Italian migrants, or the Chinese Exclusion Act, um, and you can or, or the internment of the Japanese. It's like yeah, a yeah. super fresh example. Um, in all our minds as we see these camps on the border and stuff like that, you know, it's, it seems to be that the way our system is set up is to first set up an economic system that drives them out of their homes. And then once they start coming here saying, no, 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 no. We found this place. (laughs) We eliminated like the people who lived here before. And like, now you're not invited to the party, which is such a, my ancestors, are all immigrants, um, yeah. you know. What What are your origins? Uh, Scottish and Norwegian on my mom's side, and uh, English literally came over on the Mayflower on my dad's side. Um, had to flee uh, the U.S. during the Revolution because they were loyalists to the crown. And <laughs> went up to Nova Scotia, really proud part of our family's history, but then we're, we're Yankees in the Revolution. Um but, you know, immigrants fleeing persecution on all sides. Yeah. So I, I definitely, I, I go beyond sympathize. I'm like, how could I fit a migrant family into my live work <laughs> workspace? Like, Turn it into a loft. You said you had high, high I, I did. So that's my summer project is building out the studio. I just built a loft and then I'm working on a partition wall to keep the kitties in. Yeah. <laughs> no. And then I like and then maybe and then maybe cage. yeah. No, and then maybe I can like figure out a situation where I could do foster some I'm just you know, we all feel so helpless and yeah. it's like, well, what the fuck can I actually do? Giving money obviously. Yeah. Doesn't really do much. Um Yeah, and I sometimes I'm like I see all those ice posts or up posts mm. where people post things uh that like what your rights are and stuff mm-hmm. like that. And I have weird feelings about it because to some degree I am learning things that I didn't know and I appreciate that. But then also like, I don't know if it's misinformation sometimes, you know, like, uh, it, it, uh, I could see a seedy motherfucker (laughs) making a meme that gets out and like people just repost and share. I mean, I know that that's like, uh, that, that that's just paranoia. (laughs) No, but you're right. And it speaks to sort of, uh, the nature of the infographic, which has become our like main communication tool in the era of social media. Right. Or like, 140 characters like it's not a lot of information it's not fact-checked it has no citations like yeah yeah yeah. i remember being told that like wikipedia was not a valid source in a paper (laughs) wikipedia is so much more accurate than like the area 51 shit that you see going on right now and stuff like that which is just like oh my god you just hit me on on a thing have you seen the bob lazar documentary no oh dude that's a whole fucking rabbit hole that will take us off topic. Maybe, maybe in like a few more minutes. But, um, dude, the uh, one of the things that I am like lear- learning to sort of cope with 
um, or like using as a coping mechanism, which is helping me have a lot more insight into how these, mm-hmm. this repeating cycle kind of just happens is, uh, is the, there's a, a tenant in, uh, chaos magic, which is basically postmodernism, okay. uh, 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 belief. Like what they talk about is, uh, um, Robert Carroll says that this guy, Austin Spears, who dis- who kind of is the forefather of uh, occult, like modern contemporary occultism, sure. postmodernism, in, in specifically, he was the first person to see that there was like an inherent sleight of mind trick that that everybody uh, or every religion sort of has, right? To um, it's almost like a, a self-imposed placebo effect, mm-hmm. right? Like when you believe in crystals, like you can actually make yourself mood change just by right. the crystals, right? Um, and so the idea that this guy who was fucking with these ideas of like, well, what if I use a little bit of this and a little bit of that and, and, you know, not like being, um, myopic in your, uh, belief system. I guess it's what people in LA say spiritual, but I think even that's a little more modernist than, than what we're talking about here. So what he says is that, uh, or what, what the, what the, I don't know if it was Austin Spears who said it, but what is what these guys talk about is the idea of uh, if nothing is true, everything is permissible. And once, <laughs> I'm sorry, but no, it's it's <laughs> giving me an anxiety attack. It's literally the era we're living through. You know, don't believe your eyes and ears. It's but it, but everybody's a postmodernist now uh, in in this very strange way without really being aware, and to some degree, it's. It's, um, like we said, it's cyclical, so it's not going to be bad all the time, but it is like things like Instagram and, and these, these tools where now everybody's sort of famous, Mm -hmm. right? Like, um, you can be known by people and never leave the fucking house, which is essentially what I go through sometimes. And it's all contextualization, right? Like it's hyper contextualization because... I don't know who the fuck Kylie Jenner is. I don't know what Kylie Jenner does. She's apparently a billionaire for being famous on a particular social platform. So we've kind of built new frameworks, actually, so that we can probably repeat the cycle that you're talking about within those frameworks, right? Like social media being the newest framework. But, but okay, yes. (laughs) And I I, I agree with what you're saying, and that's exactly what I'm talking about, where I think that, like... um, we used to live in a monoculture where only certain people had access to the image uh, making tools, right? Like there was no, like, it's almost like, remember when everybody got excited that you could just set up your own home studio and make music, right? It's a little bit like uh, everybody can be their own mass media company, right? And so to some degree, I think that that does help us get to where we are, um, like I'm hoping that people are a little bit more aware, or maybe I'm just in my own fucking bubble. Right. But, but that that people listen with a little bit more skepticism because, like, you know, and I think that that ends up being healthy because everything is so fucking crazy right now, and you can't find truth. You sort of have to like 
read with with the critical thinking engaged as opposed to just like back when you would read the newspaper and the news was the news. Right. And I, I, I think by and large, the news is still the news. One of my favorite quotes, uh, it was Stephen Colbert when he was hosting the Colbert show, show and he said, the facts have a liberal bias, you yeah. know, in, in his, in his persona, he says that, and it's true. And being yeah. the son of scientists and scholars and, um, you know, my, my I'm the only non-scientist in the family. Um, I believe in objective truth. The question is that objective truth became so much associated with modernism and like the idea of progress that, um, you know, it became demonized in its own right, maybe accurately so, but that sort of like cynicism around truth, I, I don't think benefits us as a society. I mean, of course, totally we need to be agree, critical yeah. thinkers. We need to ask questions. Um, but I'm not going to dispute the logic of climate change with a scientist as a no, know, absolutely, as an artist, absolutely. You know? But but that's that, and that therein lies the postmodernism applied for evil purposes by right. the ruling class to to use a, a, a bus term. Right. But but you know, like. Um, that's where they are using postmodernism as a tool for oppression, where they where they literally have enough money so that they can say if nothing is true, everything is permissible. Right. Right. And and so for me, I do hope that like there is a sense that people. I mean, I do feel like it's at least maybe we are coastal elites and we have access to that. I have They're, that shirt. That's actually my voting shirt. It says, <laughs> Coastal elite, because I think it's a, it, it like cracks me up that I might just really piss off one Republican that day. But yeah, but um, but to some degree, there is, there has been. It's that elitism that we were talking about earlier. There has been sort of like this, like dismissiveness of like, oh, we went to school. Yeah, <laughs> and and there still is, and you know, artists, it, you know, speaking about niches to go back talking about peacocks. Artists fill a really interesting niche because most of us have had a shit ton of school, right? Yeah. Like you have books on your uh, uh, <laughs> oh, no. bookcase that give me an anxiety attack. That, are, <laughs> that art in theory book is like I cited know, in my thesis so many times. That book is a nightmare. I love it, but that book is uh, a nightmare. I got it from a Cal Arts student. Okay, <laughs> we do it. We do it at uh, CSUN as well. So. Um, oh wait, you're not CalArts. You say I'm not CalArts. Okay, so because you mentioned that it was Montevista was originally by, yeah, right, yeah, right, right, right. Okay. So I'm sorry um, for the misunderstanding. No, it's okay. There's um, actually three of us who are um, CSUN graduates. So what's CSUN? Uh, Cal, State, Cal State University Northridge, which is where okay. I and uh, my best friend and colleague Emily Jones, who you've met and yeah, spoken yeah. with. Uh, we both did our MFAs there. So she graduated 2016 and I graduated 2017. Yeah. And we had that brick of a book um, <laughs> among our reading. I barely glanced at it. <laughs> um, looking up, it's like if you've ever searched JSTOR, the index of that book is like searching JSTOR. Like I, I, it's so, there's such a Pacific. Like, What's JSTOR? JSTOR is the free online um, sort of like scientific papers that you okay. have access to through a university while you're you're going there, and it's just. It's it's like one of the old search engines, like Alta Vista yeah. Search or something like that. Like they never got the like technology sector involved in the way that you can search for things. Yeah. So you know, my interest in 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 the history of land, especially in Los Angeles, you'll get you know 
results that have nothing to do with Richard Hager. You have to be a scientist to use it in the first place, I feel like, sometimes. <laughs> and my siblings will laugh at this if this makes it into the interview because they're all very well versed in uh, JSTOR and the... Uh, <laughs> It's not an intuitive design. It is not. It is yeah. not. And it, yeah, and much like that book. Um, so going, I mean, we've kind of gone a little bit off of your main topic, which I that. think was, no, that's, I, I, I'm okay with it too, yeah. but I, I, I also like to go back. <laughs> yeah. Well, well, let me see if I can tie up some, some threads or, or yeah, tie yeah, this absolutely. back in. So in, in Los Angeles, we're talking about basically, you know, in my, in my, um, interest in a lot of this is because I worked for the Conservation Corps um, and then as a nursery manager and then as an environmental consultant before the Great Recession. So I was working basically for these giant evil um, land development companies who were Mm -hmm. building 6,000 homes out in the desert and I'd be out there looking for the one endangered native species that was going to force them to do remediation on another disturbed site. So they'd have to go back. So because of the Coastal Commission, other California laws were very environmentally progressive. You build something, you have to make up for it on another site. So that's what I was doing when the housing collapse Mm. happened. And then it was like, there was no work to be had. Um, So that's sort of my, my entry point. So I'm really interested, um, not only in the development of land, which of course we talked about the sprawling sort of metroplex, a city that fully embraces the car. Um, and all of that is tied to, um, at land use and water really. So maybe I can connect the dots. There's this, um, theory called big history, which I'm really interested in. There's a great, like when discovery channel still did sort of educational things, mm-hmm series that they did and they will take something like salt and they will tie the formation of salt to stellar collisions and even, you know, um, sodium and chlorine being created in a star before it bursts. And then it'll take you all the way through, through the present day. So, you know, you wouldn't even think about it, but Salzburg is made because, um, that's where salt was, right? Or, um, Salzburg, Salzburg. Is yeah, okay. it was named because it was, uh, it had salt flats or salt mines together. Salt from the word salary that we use is because Roman soldiers were paid in salt. It was oh, so shit. necessary yeah. for life. It was so necessary for the preservation of like meat and vegetables and whatever that you fucking have given me like so much joy just with that little because i yeah. that's that's one of my area i never fucking knew that i like, i show it to my students because yeah. i want them you know i teach uh art in the university system but i want them to think and maybe that's why i'm i'm, I'm sort of a rambly speaker and i apologize to you not at all but it's it, because it, all these it things are, easy. <laughs> are really tied together yeah, um, yeah, yeah and that's why when i say i'm interested in places that you know, history can pivot on an object or an idea. Um, those become really interesting to me. So in terms of, um, you know, sort of what we were talking about in the end stage capitalism or whatever you want to call it and the cycles of um, sort of abuse on uh, people of color, um, the LGBT community, migrants, um, whoever it may be, it also is reflected in like sort of our land use. Mm-hmm. Um, certainly redlining, um, is really famous, but another issue was just, just I, I kind of know what it is, but just describe what it is real quick. So redlining was basically taking the best areas of, and it, it didn't start here. We didn't invent it. It's just California had the earliest 
land zoning laws in the country. So no one else had, you know, this is commercial, this is industrial, whatever. Um, and so it lent itself very easily um, to, to this redlining, which is basically isolating the best communities for, by and large, white communities. Okay. Um, and then preventing um, the people of color from, from moving into particular neighborhoods, which, of course, is now... Um, illegal, but the remnants of it uh, yeah, yeah. are still with us today. The communities are already set. Yeah. Right. Yeah. You can look like at, at a place like Lomar Park, which, you know, has a really <laughs> vibrant art yeah. scene, but is, is inherently black due to the sort of, um, what area is this? Uh, Lamert Park, which is sort of right by Inglewood. Okay. Um, there's a bunch it's of galleries. Of over, yeah, 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 yeah. And it's, it really has a vibrant art scene. There's a Hawthorne arts complex over there. Um, yeah, there's a lot going on. Um, but any, anyways, that was established as a black community basically because of red line laws. So, um, keeping all of that in mind, it all has to do with, uh, how the city was initially planned. Right. So first you've got native Americans who are foraging. Um, Mm. then you have the Spanish who cut down all our oak trees. Um, and then you have the, the Anglo, um, movement towards Los Angeles, sort of after the gold rush, but also before. Um, and, and each one is finding water, establishing its dominance over the water and excluding that water from lesser peoples. Right. So, um, and it, it develops essentially, um, based on agricultural plots up until, uh, 1950, Los Angeles, Los Angeles, the city was the largest agricultural producer in, uh, the U S if not just North America. Um, and a lot of people don't realize that we sit on what is, um, floodplain right now. Right. So we have two rivers, the San Gabriel and the Los Angeles river. And over the millennia, they have, um, migrated across, right. And deposited all this silt that we sit on basically, which is why earthquakes are so bad here. Right. So this is that big history idea, right? Like mm-hmm. the, the so fact when that people... You, you did a, when you said that the river migrates, you did a sweeping motion, so it migrates back and forth? In the... Right, okay. yeah. Uh, you know, you've seen things like oxbow lakes, uh, et cetera. Like water I moves didn't... around over time. It did, okay, yeah, it I actually pop... didn't. <laughs> so here's a great example. The, the Los Angeles River uh, let out in Santa Monica Bay, um, and in 1825, there was a big flood with, uh, you, you get stuff washing down for the mountains basically, right? Uh-huh. It deposits, it blocks off a channel. The river goes to the path of least resistance, right? So you mm. can imagine that ha- happening over thousands and millions of years, really, okay. um, depositing our soil, which is then sort of the, uh, the silt from the river. Um, and in 1938, there was a great flood, right? Mm-hmm. Los Angeles now has a population of... 200,000 plus, um, you know, we're, we're booming. People are moving here. Um, and they wanted to be able to farm sort of Culver city area in that area. And they built a big bridge and there was a big flood and the bridge washes away. Okay. Well, the bridge takes with it the levees that were holding the river. The river now lets out in long beach. So, uh, the path of those two rivers has sort of established uh, the territory which we now inhabit and created really fertile agricultural land, um, which then, of course, was easily subdivided, right? Like you're mm-hmm. going from a grid pattern to a different kind of grid pattern um, with housing development and things like that. And so that sort of laid the framework 
for, um, you know, not only gentrification and segregation, but it's, you can imagine those farms as sort of, um, the framework for Los Angeles today. Mm -hmm. That's fascinating, dude. Love it. I'm glad you know this because now I get to (laughs) Now you get to hear it. Okay. So the other one is, uh, we, the, uh, United States legislature passed a special bill, and this is real early on, like maybe 1919, that said that cities could own property outside their city limits. So, is that, uh, are, we, are we talking about San Pedro next? No. Well, <laughs> we should talk about San Pedro, but it's all that's it. It's all tied in. It's big history, man. So, no, I'm talking about the Owens I'm River. I'm picturing you at home with like pictures on the wall and the oh, the, the, string? the string. I totally am that <laughs> guy. I I know. I. Uh, I totally am that guy. I love those relationships. How do you feel? I mean, obviously the the Rome Polanski is is not a great guy, but how do you feel about Chinatown? It sounds like I've never seen Chinatown. Okay. I think it's one of my dad's favorite movies, and I'm just I'm not a sit down and watch a movie guy, which is yeah, yeah. like horrifies other people. I'll like either have the news or educational TV on in the background, but I don't really watch anything. I've never seen it either, but it does sound like (laughs) like you would be a character in it, like discovering the corruption. Yeah. So, so one thing that interests me is not only like the place names with, with native names, but like names like Mulholland and, uh, Stanford. Um, I'm forgetting the name of the guy in Wilmington, the, um, We'll get back to that. It starts with a B, but he's he's the reason we have the port and actually the reason why Los Angeles is bigger than San Francisco, right? Like mm-hmm. he, he brought the railroad out here. At any rate, in the early 1900s, they figured out that the city was running about running out of water. The, the natural water sources can support about 250,000 people. Mm-hmm. Um, Do in, you know any idea how, how big the population is now? Uh, Los Angeles Metroplex is yeah. something like 13 million, right? Like, oh, like with including Orange County, okay. sort of as it in Ventura and all that. Um, I believe it. You could say any number, I, I, <laughs> any I, high number, and I believe think it. that's real. I, I hope I didn't make that up. I think LA itself is about. <laughs> Don't 4. cite 4. this in your paper. <laughs> right, 4.5 million or something like that. The city of. Um, so they went out and they bought land in Owens Valley and they basically convinced farmers like, Oh, well, you guys have plenty of water out here. You have constant ice melt from the mountains. Um, and they basically bought a lake. So Owens Lake does not exist anymore. And Mm. that is, um, part of the California aqueduct that, um, brings us water, which is the largest aqueduct in the world. Um, but it, it starved a valley basically. It's a natural aqueduct. Or? It is not. Okay. No, it was built by Mulholland. Okay. So that's where we get that place name from, which is, you know, it intricately tied to water. Again, yeah. we've got like a place named for the guy who brought the water here. Um, other other names involved are like uh, Doheny, like I mentioned, Stanford. Um, Who's Stanford? Is Stanford uh, one of the first governors of California. The reason we have motion picture mm. uh, and he founded the university or it was left in his, his, his grant. Um, (coughs) so these names pop up again and again and, 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 um, things are named for them, but again, it's just tied to water. So, um, that, that's one issue. The other thing I wanted to talk about was the railroad, um, and Banning. now that I can remember his name. So Banning was this guy who owned kind of swampland in Wilmington, and figured out you could dredge it um, 
because most of Southern California actually is either wetlands habitat or back dunes habitat. And then you have like sage scrub beyond that. But you back know, dunes? Back dunes is where, so dunes don't grow a whole lot of plants due to the nature okay. of wind and whatnot. So back dunes is really where you get like a, quite a lot of biodiversity. Um, okay. It's sort of like sheltered by the dune. Yeah. Kinda. So you can uh, kind of imagine. It's like a dune valley. We had sand that permeated inland and then uh, a system of back dunes and wetlands habitats. And then you would have had silt deposited by the rivers and then the rivers themselves, which are riparian habitat, which is where yeah. uh, things like mule fat grow. Mule fat. Mule fat. Yeah. Oh, mule fat. Yeah. yeah. Mule fat. From earlier. Yeah. Um, so so, at the, so he figured out that you could dredge out... He convinced leaders in Washington that San Pedro was a much better harbor than San Francisco, which is a goddamn lie. <laughs> uh, and I, but I, I am so fascinated by the harbor and so fascinated by the... And again, we're talking about frameworks because that whole thing is built on like dredged soil and it gets bigger every year. There's like a Google map progression where you can watch from like 1960 onwards and you just move time forwards. Look at the LA Harbor. It is absolutely Wait, bonkers. so dredged means that it's an artificial, it's built artificially? All of it. Okay. All of it. Yeah, the stone for the for the breakwater came from the Catalina Cliffs. They because it was easier just to like blast the cliffs and have it land on the bar. <laughs> they built it was this huge human undertaking, like building the frickin' Hoover Dam. And they just should have built the railroad to San Francisco. And I love Southern California. I love Los Angeles. I love Long Beach more than anything. But it it, it really was like you're talking about yeah. uh, sort of like corruption. And so they got um, they built their own rail line. And then they connected it to the eastern coast. And this is before we're even connected to San Francisco. Uh Um, And that's what our harbor developed on and really what allowed Los Angeles to grow. And that was really early on. Wow. You know, you're talking about like 1830s through the 1870s that that took place. We weren't connected to San Francisco until 1879, though. So how come the harbor, this is the harbor in San Pedro? Long Beach, San Pedro. Long Beach, San Pedro. How come Long Beach is in L.A.? Um, Long Beach was uh, probably actually a bigger city than Los Angeles at the turn of the century. Mm-hmm. Um, it had a number of hills that looked over the ocean, and that's sort of where the wealthy lived. Um, mm-hmm. All of that very much changed due to the discovery of oil, um, just because there is so much oil over there. Yeah. that. Um, uh, agricultural land became oil land. So I okay. would say that's another thread that ties everything together is sort of oil, oil in Southern here. California. We yeah. go to the beach, we get tar on our feet, right? Yeah. And that's natural. That's not because of some oil rig out there. It's not because of Dockweiler Beach's like big fucking power plant. <laughs> no. What, uh, is that a power plant? I, I, it's got Dockweiler is the one that's behind LAX, right? Yeah. Yeah. There's a water treatment facility there. Okay, I, but I, there's I, huge smokestacks that are like I'm not sure cartoonish. The, you know who could answer this is my mother, the biogeographer, because she <laughs> takes her students there every year. Retired now, but um, to the water processing plant because uh-huh. she's really interested in the history of water in Los Angeles as well. And sort of the idea that we are not doing enough to reclaim our water um, after big rains. So here's another factoid and you know you can take this whatever direction you want on um so we experience major storm events here right Mm -hmm. major winter rains um that are isolated sort of to the winter and early spring 
the amount of water that flows out of the Los Angeles River during a rainstorm is equal to or exceeds the flow of the Mississippi River into oh, the shit. Gulf of Mexico during a large rain event. So, um, and part of that reason is because we're not reclaiming any of yeah, that, yeah. right? So 1938, the big flood, the bridge washes away. Army Corps of Engineers comes in and says, fuck this. Which putting, bridge? Sorry, this is like... uh, this is an old wooden bridge okay. that was out in like Culver City with a Playa, Playa Vista sort of area. Bayona Creek is where the Los Angeles River originally exited into the ocean. Okay, if you can imagine. Yeah. Um, oh, and I, uh, fuck man, and I always call it Baluna Creek. Baluna, <laughs> nice. That's such an asshole. Just really <laughs> use that Spanish accent, like <laughs> Baloney Creek. Yeah, and that that is such a weird fraught place, man. I used to be involved with the restoration there, and you go to one of the meetings that uh, involves a hundred different players. You got the bug guy screaming about bugs. You got the bird guy <laughs> screaming about birds. You have the kids who play little league there because there's you know there was some land development before it was preserved, um, and there's all these parties and who are interested in it. It's just such a clusterfuck that you. Uh, you know, they make very little headway there and it's too bad because it's a really beautiful area. So I'm, I'm going to try to remember something from a show that, oh, have you, are you familiar with the dollop podcast? No. Okay. So it's a comedy podcast. It's very fun, but it's a history podcast as well. So one guy reads a story to actually, this is one of the, one of the, the reasons that I have people come on and teach me mm -hmm. is because I was in, inspired by that. Um, but one person knows what the topic is and the other person doesn't. Yeah. And so it's like, he's essentially trolling the other guy <laughs> with history facts of, that are horrifying or whatever, right. whatever he's researched. And one of them was on these people in California. I don't know exactly that have, uh, they're, it, it, it's like almost like it. It's that same intersection of uh, uh, racial oppression and mm -hmm. shit like that. They have people in their... Um, they're like fucking weird billionaire health nuts. And they have people that work for them. And they incentivize, they, they incentivize them, advise them to like do exercise and shit like that by paying them more. And so... <laughs> and it's this weird fucking like very uh problematic situation but in that episode they talk about how there's uh something called paper water do you know what that is i don't okay well then i'll tell you and we'll stop talking about it because <laughs> i was hoping you did and you could enlighten me on it but basically it's like water that doesn't exist but that mm. exists on paper that and and so i I'm, i guess my major point is that like it's so fucked up that the way that it works politically that uh, there's a whole episode about how <laughs> there's water on paper that doesn't actually exist in the land. So, so people aquifers are a really great example. Okay, you know farmers in in the Central Valley and um, having done my first year of graduate school at uh, uh, Cal State Chico, I, I became really aware of this because you see the signs. Fuck Obama and Nancy Pelosi, they're stealing our water. Well, they've been allowed to freely pump from the aquifers there for you know. 80 years um and it goes straight into a water cooler in nancy pelosi's office it just directly and she, <laughs> she an ivy just showers in it that's what's <laughs> keeping her so young yeah uh 
it, really the the disagreement is about farm subsidies and and the subsidization of water, which actually should be much more expensive in in Los Angeles and in California in general. Yeah. Um, and the idea that they just have the rights to as much water as they need for um, for agriculture and really. Um, damaging and unwise practices like there's a lot of rice farmed mm. um in the central valley which means a flooded field and that is not the best yeah, thing I, to be growing here i've right? seen enough uh, vietnam movies to know how rice is it's it's pretty bonkers and we grow enough rice in the mississippi delta to feed the world like twice over every year wow. there's no reason for us to be growing rice in california um, just like capitalist greed yeah and almonds is the other thing and those are another thing that they flood the fields for like we should not be growing almonds in southern california Citrus makes a lot of sense. Um, lower water plants make a lot of sense. Uh, annual sort of vegetables make a lot of sense. But the idea that we're flooding fields um, is really wild, given the precariousness of our access to water, which mostly comes from yeah. Northern California at this point. Comes from um, God. What is that lake? It's up there, <laughs> dude. I can't remember. It's <laughs> you're, you're blowing me away with, with all this shit, well, and all you know. So if you forget an, no, a no, river no. or two, I, you're good. I, no, I'm like, dude. This is like, uh, like listening to a podcast <laughs> about, like, I'm just like, I'm not even hosting at this point. I, I'm just gonna let you tell me shit. Well, that you I mentioned don't know. therapy. You should see my first <laughs> therapy session with any given psychologist. There. I'm like, I'm just basically gonna talk for an hour, and at the end, you're gonna say, "Wow." and ask for another appointment. <laughs> I, I'm of the same, uh, same process. Same yeah. What's My Thesis is produced by Javier Proenza, who is talking in the third person. Reach out at whatsmythesis at gmail.com and follow us on all social media at whatsmythesis. Don't forget to review and subscribe. And if you donate to our Patreon, this is where I'll give you a shout out and make up what kind of art you make based entirely on your name and nothing else. <laughs>